If you're seated, that's okay. You can remain seated. Um, because I've thought this before we actually dive into our topic a little more fully today, I'd like to do a little moving meditation with you. And so um, if you are feeling okay, spread out, spread out just a touch, just, just a few inches is fine. And uh, just uh, uh, watch me first for just one moment. It's just a simple Tai Chi-like exercise. And what we're going to do is put our palms up, facing upwards. And I guess you can just move with me this first time, and uh, we'll take it from there. And taking a deep breath as we inhale, raising our arms toward the sky, stretching upward, inhaling deeply, and then turning palms down, and just exhaling and releasing a nice, slow, steady motion. Find the rhythm that, rhythm that works for your breath. In, in again. Rise up a little if you like. Turning palms down. And so the idea here is to pull in some energy from the earth, positive energy, and then to release anything that we don't want in our personal space as we drop and release. So up, inhaling positive energies, turning over, releasing anything we don't want. And I'll say some words along with us. So let's inhale full presence and exhale any mental chatter. Inhale peace. Exhale agitation. Inhale energy. Exhale lethargy. Inhale gratitude. Exhale, cynicism. Inhale, trust. Exhale, doubt. Inhale, joyfulness. You might smile on this one a little bit. Exhale, pessimism. Last one, inhale, expansive, new, soulful adventures. Exhale anything that no longer serves you or others. And then bringing our hands together over our hearts, just bring those positive energies together. Breathe with them a couple times. Grateful for each breath of life and the chance to share ours with others. And to close, we offer just a little bow of thanks for this shared moment of connection. Thank you. Please be seated. So there's a story of a person from a much more uh, traditional faith background who happens to visit a Unitarian Universalist service one Sunday. Eventually the sermon begins, and as it progresses, the visitor is, grows increasingly dismayed at the unorthodox perspectives being offered. After the service, a UU member approaches and welcomes them and asks, so how did you like it? The visitor sputters rather indignantly, well, I can't believe half the things that minister said. A big grin fills the UU member's face and they say, great, then you'll fit right in. <laughs> I share this because over the next few months uh, with you, I'm likely to probably offer some perspectives that may indeed challenge certain views, including today when I begin 
to question the completeness of the strictly rationalist framework that, of reality that most folks in our modern culture hold. Uh, and before I do, I also wanted to remind us that Unitarian Universalism expressly values what's called freedom of the pulpit. It was referred to briefly uh, in our, re in our uh, centering words, meaning that ministers are encouraged to openly offer their views for consideration. And I'll also remind us that in UUism, this goes both ways, meaning that listeners are just as free to receive what works for them and to let the rest go. Of course, this freedom of expression and belief differs markedly from the expectations in many faith traditions, as someone named Elaine Pagels learned in her youth. Ms. Pagels is a highly regarded historian of religion and a professor of religion at Princeton University. Early in her career, she received the National Book Award for a work called The Gnostic Gospels, a study of the more than 50 ancient religious texts discovered in Upper Egypt in 1945, a find that blew the roof off the scholarly understandings of early Christian theology and practice. Pagels later wrote a book focusing on one of these texts called Beyond Belief, The Secret Gospel of Thomas. In it, she tells this story. When I was 14 and had joined an evangelical Christian church, I found in the enthusiastic and committed gatherings and in John's gospel, which my fellow Christians treasured, what I then craved, the assurance of belonging to the right group, the true flock that alone belonged to God. Like many people, I regarded John as the most spiritual of the four gospels, for in John, Jesus is not only a man, but a mysterious superhuman presence, and he tells his disciples to love one another. At the time, I did not dwell on disturbing undercurrents that John alternates his assurance of God's gracious love for those who believe with warnings that everyone who does not believe is condemned already to eternal death. Before long, however, I learned what inclusion cost. The leaders of the church I attended directed their charges not to associate with outsiders except to convert them. Then, after a close friend was killed in an automobile accident at the age of 16, my fellow evangelicals commiserated, but declared that since he was Jewish and not born again, he was eternally damned. Distressed and disagreeing with her interpretation and finding no room for discussion, I realized that I was no longer at home in their world and left that church. To me, Elaine Pagel's early and, as it turned out, formative experience is a perfect illustration of the opposing psychological poles of this parochial level of religious belief. Because scholars who study morality find that this or any type of highly structured belief system both binds and blinds. It binds people by creating communities with a shared viewpoint. And the more certain and exclusionary the viewpoint, the tighter the bond. But that same certainty also blinds members to so, of such communities to the possible validity of other perspectives and to the harm their own viewpoint might inflict. In some cases, it even blinds them to the very humanity of those they consider different, as the ongoing legacy of religious violence demonstrates all too clearly. Yale professor of psychiatry Bruce Wexler talks about how this binding and blinding in his book, Brain and Culture. 
He explains how early in our life, our brains are highly malleable. So our inner world, including our developing belief system, is open to new input and can readily adjust to new data. But after young adulthood, our brains become less elastic, so many people unconsciously start trying to match their outer worlds to an increasingly inflexible inner one. One main way folks do this is to cluster with others who consistently confirm their views and interpretations of the world. Because when our inner beliefs and outer perceptions align, what Wexler terms consonance, we feel good, while its opposite, dissonance, engenders a doubt and anxiety. But this then limits people's exposure to experiences and openness to perspectives that don't already match their beliefs. When you add confirmation bias, in which people seize on data and arguments that support their beliefs and ignore or discredit conflicting evidence, the cycle of certainty becomes self-perpetuating, whether or not that certainty is justified. Let me repeat that, whether or not that certainty is justified. Elaine Pagels found such blinding among the evangelical church members who uniformly said their unsaved friend who was tragically killed was forever damned. This, ex this exemplifies a stance from our reading. Some beliefs are like walled gardens. They encourage exclusiveness and the feeling of being especially privileged. Other beliefs are expansive and lead the way into wider and deeper sympathies. And in her grief and her distress over her churchmate's conclusion and finding no room for discussion, young Elaine left in search of such wider and deeper sympathies. Countless others have had similarly painful experiences. Now I recognize that a wide range of interpretations and expressions exist within long-standing religious traditions. And per Ed's reflection, I also realize that people are individuals and not simply members of any category. Yet at the same time, folks do belong to groups, and sometimes an affiliation is the main source of their identity. For example, in Elaine Pagel's case, I'm an evangelical Christian. And as both Pagels and Bruce Wexler point out, such groups carry shared beliefs, and these matter profoundly, both in how people view the world and how they act in it. And in the US and worldwide, large factions remain deeply entrenched in what's known as the pre-rational, sometimes also called the traditional or mythic stage or level of consciousness. Spiritual philosopher Ken Wilber lays out some of the larger costs of this mythic blinding. I've abridged his words and added the term pre-rational once for clarity. He writes, the world's great religions are still the repositories of the magic and mythic elements of humanity. So that means they believe that Moses really did part the Red Sea, that Lao Tzu was 900 years old when he was born, and Jesus really was born of a biological virgin. And there's this huge gaping conflict between mythic and rational, which creates a pressure cooker around the world. If you look at terrorism, for example, every one of the major religiously inspired terrorist acts of the last 30 or 40 years came from mythic beliefs. And they all basically say the same thing. The rational world won't make room for my pre-rational religion, 
and so they try to blow it up. As Wilbur indicates, after the traditional or mythic level, the next developmental stage of consciousness is the rational or modern stage. Born from the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution, this is the prevailing view of mainstream culture in the so-called developed world, in business, academia, media, most professions, etc. And by and large, people at this rational stage look at the earlier pre-rational stage and want nothing to do with it. I know I don't. The modern stage is the same one that M. Scott Peck, the late American psychiatrist and best-selling author, most famously of The Road Less Traveled, calls the skeptic or individual orientation to reality. Says Peck, people at this stage are usually scientific-minded, rational, moral, and humane. They tend to not only be skeptical of the spiritual, but rather uninterested in anything that cannot be proven. Pondering the detrimental consequences of pre-rational religions, uh, the blinding that happens, such as Ken Wilber described, there are modern stage thinkers who insist the antidote is to reject all religious or spiritual belief. In different ways, these new atheists, writers like Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion or Michael Shermer in The Believing Brain, assert that science must be the only measure of a proposed truth. But what they don't seem to realize is that the literalist pre-rational stage is not the only mode of spiritual understanding, nor do they comprehend that the modern stage of consciousness is not the ultimate one because beyond the modern is the postmodern. By the way, this isn't the ultimate stage either, but that's another topic. <laughs> While there are many facets to this, part of the postmodern stage is a transrational level of spiritual development, neither pre-rational nor rational, transrational, beyond rational, a level M. Scott Peck calls mystical communal. He writes that here, People are rational, but do not make a fetish of rationalism. They feel deeply connected to an unseen order of things, although they cannot fully define it. They are comfortable with the mystery of the sacred. Now, there are some UUs, many of whom, like me, came to this faith largely to escape the far-fetched claims and exclusivism of pre-rational religion, who remain in the modern skeptic-slash-individual stage, and who question that any unseen order exists in the universe or in our lives. But in contrast to more blinded or binded but blinded pre-rational communities, here they are allowed to freely voice that view. And here they sit side by side with others who are very comfortable with the mystery of the sacred and perhaps somewhat or even deeply familiar with an unseen order and are attuned to its synchronicitous signals and ready to lean into them. This delightful situation shouldn't be surprising because both the modern and postmodern stages are named in the six sources that Euhuism's living tradition draws from. Living meaning not fixed, but ever evolving. The modern is the fifth source, which is humanist teachings, which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science and warn us against idolatries of the mind and spirit. 
I love that, that in a religious community there is an explicit acknowledgement of the value of rationalism and the scientific method. And the secular humanism that this expresses is a vital corrective to the pre-rational stage. But UUism doesn't stop there, because our first source affirms the postmodern transrational or mystical communal stage by affirming, quote, direct experience of the transcending mystery and wonder, which moves us to a renewal of the spirits and an openness to the forces that create and uphold life. Unitarian Universalism's willingness to explicitly embrace and honor both these stages, both science and spirit, means our faith differs profoundly from pre-rational religious traditions and from rigid rationalism. And like all the scholars I've already mentioned, words from a reading by pioneering UU religious educator Sophia lyon Foz underscores that one's beliefs including the religious narratives humans tell about ourselves and others, have very real effects on people's lives and the world. Some beliefs are divisive, separating saved from unsaved, friends from enemies. Other beliefs are bonds in a world community where sincere differences beautify the pattern. Recall that Elaine Pagel's story of leaving a separating saved from unsaved religious home came from a book entitled Beyond Belief. How would our world be enriched and ennobled if all people now moved beyond belief? That is, beyond the warring separatist dogmas and ancient animosities of pre-rational religions and beyond the overall clannish level of consciousness which also shows up in cultural and political battles and into a big umbrella consciousness of world community that sees beauty in diversity rather than threat. In short, it would mean the world, that is our very survival. For as our reading's final stanza proclaims, some beliefs are rigid like the body of death, impotent in a changing world. Other beliefs are pliable like the young sapling ever growing with the upward thrust of life. Among many other places, in intentionally integrating the modern rational and postmodern transrational stages of consciousness, this UU congregation and many others just like it is one place such pliable, life-giving saplings are nurtured. And at this time, when rigid body-of-death beliefs are frantically trying to compensate for their ultimate impotence by freezing a changing world in place, sometimes through hate and violence, this is no small thing. Being here in this kind of environment is no small thing. So if anyone asks you what you believe, if you choose to, like me, you could now say you're a transrationalist. And when they stare blankly at you, you can now explain this by simply contrasting the pre-rational, rational, and transrational stages, and then invite them to UUCPA to learn more. <laughs> Yet for anyone who would really like to believe in something uniform and absolute, I recommend some wisdom from Benjamin Franklin, who stated his theological view plainly. Beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy.
Cheers and blessed be.